Alrighty, we are rolling once again. I am back. I am Dr. Lee Grant, joined by Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And on this episode, in our pursuit of God's grace, as we explore our faith, we're going to talk about probably the biggest theological change in terms of practice that I myself have personally gone through and experienced. It's an episode that you and I have kicked around. It's one that we've talked about doing for a little while. And we actually had recorded an episode prior to this one that covered this subject. And you and I both agreed that we needed to go back and hash some things out, make some things a little bit more clear. So here we are. Tonight, we are going to discuss the communion. We're specifically going to discuss the cup and how many cups should be used on the Lord's table. And and I say that kind of tongue in cheek as, as our listeners know, you and I both come from a churches of Christ background and within the churches of Christ, there are various factions and divisions along various doctrinal lines. And one of those doctrinal lines has to do with the observance of communion and how communion is practiced in worship. And the background that I came from, that I was baptized into, and that I came from, is the one cup position. And that is is pretty simple. In the observance of the Lord's Supper, a congregation is to use one loaf of unleavened bread that everyone partakes of, and one cup of unfermented fruit of the vine that everyone partakes of. And you and I, even in our friendship, while we were still very well entrenched in legalism, Kevin, we both had some we had some good discussions about this idea. We'd rib each other about it a little bit, but we never really did a deep dive into it. And up until fairly recently, this is a conviction that I held on to for a while. And frankly, I wasn't really willing or or ready to have a discussion about it until recently. So yeah. I know it's one you've been interested in doing for a while, well, and we're finally there. Well, I remember a friend not too long ago, probably six months, maybe seven months ago, because we've been doing the podcast now right around a year, a little about a year. I think it was May of 2020 is when we started. Yes. And, you know, this is when you were talking a lot about theistic evolution and your changes on that, which I mean, these are super controversial topics, not just in the churches of Christ, but really as in Christendom as a whole. And, And a buddy of mine, he reached out to me. He said, well, is Lee, is he still... Believe, does he still believe in the one cup? Does he still think you have to do that? I said, well, I said, he's not dogmatic or legalistic about it. I said, but yeah, he still believes that. He goes, well, you mean he believes in theistic evolution? <laughs> but but he's still holding on. He's like, does does his, does, does his congregation know that? I said, well, I said, yeah, they do now because, I mean, it's, it's uh, out there for everybody to listen to on our podcast. But uh, he and I had a, a good conversation just on the side. And Lee, you and I talked about this before we started recording that, when you go through a change, a change like you've gone through, a change like I've gone through, a change like many people who are listening to this podcast have probably gone through, there are changes that take place instantly. There's something that you see that's an aha moment, and it's very easy for you to change. You're like, wow, yeah. that's so clear. I can't believe I've never seen that before. And it just, it, it really just puts that missing piece in that puzzle that you've been looking for. But then there's other things that even though you've changed and even though you're, you're understanding things differently and you're starting to look more at the context, there are things that we should be letting go of, or we should be changing, but for whatever reason, we still hold on to. And I've not met a single person who has gone through a change doctrinally, theologically, major changes like we're talking about who still didn't hold on to something 
for a good period of time before letting it go. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do in part with identity because with me, it was instrumental music. And one of the reasons is because I had had a debate on it. And when you have a debate on something and you affirm something and then you're changing six, you know, four or five, six years later, that's difficult. <laughs> it's difficult. Oh, yeah. to, and, and you start thinking, well, maybe I, I may, maybe I was right before. I don't know if I'm really, I don't know. And, and you kind of almost leave it in limbo where you're like, well, I'm just going to keep worshiping without instrumental music. And then I, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, it's still the best practice anyway. It's the safe route to go, you know, kind of the typical responses that sometimes you hear. And then finally, I'm studying. I'm like, well, this is crazy that I, I'm still holding on to this with where where my beliefs currently sit. I, I, this, this doesn't match. And so I, I finally realized I need to let this go. And logically, theologically, intellectually, I had let it go a long time ago, but I think emotionally, it's easy to hold on to these things. And so for, for you, this is something you've just really recently, and I mean recently, recently changed on. What would you say, the last three, four, five months, something like that? In in practice, yes, but in terms of theology, and, and man, I really like how you described your journey on instrumental music because that's a perfect parallel to the journey I've gone through related to the cup and how it's to be used in, in the communion service. And I know there's probably going to be a lot of our listeners that are thinking to themselves, what difference does it make? Like, why is that a big deal? Well, when you come from a background like Kevin and I had, and like so many of our listeners have, it's real easy to get caught up in the minutia, especially whenever the thrust of one's Christianity is predicated upon accurately and precisely obeying the commandments that God has given. And, you know, initially it, it for me, like you were saying, it was really, really hard to let go of. And I really released the legalistic attitude that I had toward it probably about eight months ago, probably a couple of months after you and I really started the podcast. It's something I've been thinking about for a while, and we'll, we'll get into kind of how that thought process went as the episode progresses. But this is something that in practice just really changed about six months ago. Whenever you and I first started the podcast, I still had some concern for your soul and anyone else's who didn't use one cup in the Lord's Supper. But I had be, at that stage, I had begun to think, well, is this really as big of a deal as our group has made it out to be? And we'll talk more about that as well as the podcast progresses and goes on. Um, but then it, it got to the point where I, I held on to it with not quite as tight of a fist. I began to let go of that and I began to think, well, you know what? I do believe that this is what the scriptures affirm. I do believe that this is what the scriptures teach. But if you have someone who's sincere in heart, they're manifesting the fruits of the spirit in their life. They pledge their fealty to Christ. They follow Jesus and they're modeling their lives after him. Maybe they've never heard the one cup position. Maybe this is something that's never even crossed their radar. Well, if that's the case, well, then they're, they're probably going to be okay. I'm not going to say they're condemned. I can't just turn around and say that they're okay, but I'm, I'm not going to be willing to condemn them anymore. And then as I study this subject more and more and more, I don't even believe that this is what the scriptures affirm anymore. Yeah. So, and, well, and, and, and all of that will unfold as we go through it. Yeah, and you were talking earlier just about this position and, and how people, especially who may not have the the Church of Christ background, but even those who do have a Church of Christ background, many listening may not be familiar or at least a part of the One Cup or were ever a part of the One Cup. I, I was dating a girl one time long ago, and she was, which we didn't really date 
very long because we had such a disagreement on this issue. But when we were talking and I, about this issue, I said, you know, I said, when, when it comes down to it, I said, your whole relationship, it seems to me, comes down to how many containers you use for the Lord's Supper. And her response to me, and I'll never forget this, she says, no, my, my, when it comes down to it, my relationship with God comes down to, am I willing to be obedient to what he's told me to do? And, yeah. and, that, and, and so for people who look at this issue or any issue for that matter and think, well, this just seems silly. This seems ridiculous. I can't believe Lee or anyone else would ever believe that. When you have that mindset and framework that your relationship is not only all about obedience, but it's also all about looking at the Bible through a certain lens of command, example, necessary inference, or we have to have authority for everything we do. This is the kind of chaos, the interpretive chaos that it causes. Because here you have the Church of Christ that claims to be the one true church, the one that has all the answers. And my response, and I say this in all sincerity, is, well, which one? <laughs> which, which one is the true church? Because all, all with, within the Church of Christ, you know, you have so many different divisions, you have so many different interpretations, and when you go with this mindset of you have to have book, chapter, and verse for everything, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos because we don't. No one has a book, chapter, and verse for everything they do. And I, I may have mentioned this before, but a buddy of mine he said that he believed not only did you have to have authority, he defined having authority as having a book, chapter, and verse for absolutely everything. And one of one of his arguments is that the reason why he believed he could go on vacation is because Mark 6.31, the Bible says that Jesus and his disciples went to a deserted place and they rested a while. And his point is, this authorizes me to take a little time out of my life, go to a faraway place, and rest a while. And I said, well, if that verse wasn't in the Bible, do you believe you'd be able to go on vacations? And he said, no. <laughs> and so wow. it, it shows you, which by the way, it said, go to a quiet place and rest a while. I said, well, what if your vacations are, maybe it's not a quiet place. Maybe you go to a, a, a an eventful place, a loud place, and you don't rest, but you do a lot of activity. I said, is that okay? He goes, well, yeah, in principle, Mark 631 would authorize that. I, I know this sounds crazy to listeners, but this is the kind of absolute confusing chaos this interpretive method uh, ends up breeding. And so that said, Lee's going to explain why he changed, not within his new frame of thought, but very similar to how we went through my change on instrumental music. Lee's going to go through his change on the cup within the framework of still believing that idea of book, chapter, verse, command, example, necessary inference, and what changed his mind even within that framework. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to make abundantly clear at the top of this, and I don't know if 11 minutes in, if we can say it's actually the top of it anymore, but it's the top of our episodes. It's man. the top 30, of the 40 minutes is the top. There it is, baby. I love it. Well, one of the things that I want to get out of the way is that none of this is meant to castigate or denigrate anybody. I'm, I'm not standing here to throw stones or cast aspersions or to cast judgment on anybody who remains unconvinced by any of the lines of reasoning that we're going to discuss or that, you know, remains firmly entrenched in their, their idea that the Lord's supper must be observed with one loaf and one cup. 
if after all this, you still believe that, that's fine. Have your conviction, make it your own. Don't just believe it though, because you've inherited it. Don't believe it because that's what you've been taught or what you've been told. Don't believe it because that's just the only thing you've ever known. Believe it because you've looked into it. You've studied the materials. You've looked at what's out there and you believe that this is the most accurate way to do so. And if, and if that's the case and you remain unconvinced by what we're going to discuss, that's fine. But if you're going to hold a conviction, hold that conviction honestly and make it your conviction. But I also want to say that within the One Cup Churches of Christ, man, I have met some of the best people that I've ever had the privilege to know. I've met some of the most loving people, some of the most kind people, some of the most sincere Christians I've ever had the privilege to, to have in my life, man. They're, they're amazing people. And one of the things that the one cup position does is it really demonstrates just how sincere these Christians are because dude, nobody observes or holds to the one cup position because their preference is to drink out of one cup after everybody else. I mean, <laughs> nobody holds that position because they're thinking, Hey, you know what? I want to go to church with, you know, some 15, 25, 35, 50, 80 people and drink after all these people Sunday morning. You know, I, I want to see that lipstick on that rim of that silver cup or glass cup or whatever it is that's being used. You know, I want to see that. I want to drink after sister so-and-so. I want to look down as that unfermented Welch just swirls in the glass and I see the little bit of oil layer on top of it from lips touching it and everything else. Yeah, that's what I really want to do. Nobody holds that position because it's their preference. That is a position that I held for a long time because I sincerely believe that that is what the Bible taught. And above all else, what I want, and brother, I think this is still true for you and for me both, even in the new paradigm that we engage the scriptures under from a relational perspective, a contextual perspective, where we're pursuing Jesus above all else, you want to be pleasing unto God. Yeah, I want to be pleasing yeah. unto God. That's what you and I both want. The issue is that the framework of what it means to be pleasing unto God then was different for me as it was for you as well. And yeah. I wanted to please God and pleasing God meant deciphering what God's will was from scripture and then doing that thing, whatever that thing was. If it meant that God wanted me to eat, you know, a hundred habanero peppers every Sunday before church, well then I'm buying me a hundred habanero peppers every Sunday before church. If that's what God wants me to do and I have book, chapter, and verse for it, well then that's what I'm going to do. So the people that hold this position, it's not a preference. It is a sincerely held belief that this is what God wants. This is God's will. This is God's desire for his church, that when they come together to remember Jesus in the observance of the Lord's Supper, that that is practiced and conducted with one loaf of unleavened bread and one cup of unfermented fruit of the vine. So that's kind of from the outlay. I just want to get that in, in, out of the way and make that abundantly clear. So what is the basis by which this conviction is based upon? That's what we'll talk about first. Then we'll talk a little bit about history. And then we'll talk about why I changed my mind from there. So do you have anything you want to add before we dive in? No, let's go ahead and jump right into it. And so for those who are listening, uh, which if you can hear this, I guess you are listening. Uh, for those who are yeah. listening and paying attention all at the same time. So what are the, what are the reasons why you held to this position that, that you so firmly believe that you had to take of the one cup and the one loaf. 
Well, a large part of that, well, it's, it's because that's simply what the Bible says, Kevin. It's just that simple. Um, <laughs> it always is, man. It always is. Now, if you take a look at the Bible and you take a look at the various instances within Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of how the Lord's Supper was established, when the Lord's Supper was established, there are certain things that flow together, and there's a picture that's painted whenever you read it from from a basically a 30,000-foot view. So we'll go ahead and start with Luke, and most of what's coming now is from sermons that I had given whenever I still held to the one cup position. So that's where a lot of this is coming from. Some of it is very little of it is borrowed from other preachers. I would hear a sermon here and take a couple of notes. I'd hear someone explain it this way and take a couple of notes. But most of what you're going to hear is synthesized from, from the lessons that I used to teach. So if we start, we'll go over to Luke. And in Luke's account, that is a really good jumping off point. You see Jesus gathering with his disciples in the upper room. And they're celebrating the Passover feast. As they celebrate the Passover, Jesus institutes the the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, the communion, whatever you want to call it. We'll use those terms throughout this. We'll use them interchangeably. They all mean the same thing. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 27, it says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20 says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So we'll touch on Luke again later because that's key to understanding the, the what's actually going on here. But in a nutshell, what you have is, is they're gathered together in the upper room. Jesus takes a cup and says, Take it and divide this among yourselves. And then in verse 20, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So the first thing that we'll notice is from the one cup perspective, there are three items of spiritual significance at play here. The first is the bread. In verse 19, he takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, gives it to him and says, this bread, I'm paraphrasing, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he takes the cup after supper. That'll be significant later on in this episode. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So you have the bread and you have the cup. The bread represents his body. The cup represents the new covenant from the one cup perspective. But what about over there in verse 17, where he takes the cup and gives thanks and says, take this and divide it among yourselves. Well, the question would be asked, how did they divide it among themselves? Well, Mark tells us exactly how they did it. In Mark 14 and 23, it says, Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Well, that's how they divided it. Jesus took the cup. He blessed it. He gave it to them. He said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. He gives them that cup. They all drink from it. Matthew goes into it and puts it this way in Matthew 26 and verses 26 through 28. It says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So there's the bread. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So there in Matthew's account, we see that third element at play. In Luke's account and in Mark's account, you have the bread and the cup at play. And then in Matthew's account, he describes 
the blood and what the blood means or what the fruit of the vine means. So you have the cup, which represents the new covenant. You have the blood or rather the fruit of the vine that represents the blood. And then you have the bread that represents the body. So in this, we'd break it down like this. And I would say this, here's what we see happening. What is it that we see? If we just read and we follow along, we see Jesus pick up one literal cup. Inside the literal cup was grape juice, not wine, grape juice. We'll talk about that later. I don't believe that's the case anymore either, but that's another (laughs) side note. Number three, he gave thanks for the juice in only one cup. He gave, number four, one cup to his disciples. And number five, he commanded all the disciples to drink from the one cup he gave them. If we take all this and we synthesize it all together, that's what we see playing out. In Matthew 26, you see a commandment from the Lord for all the disciples to drink from one cup. He took what? The cup. Did he take the cups? No, he didn't take the cups. He took the cup. And now I'm preaching like I used to uh, back in the day. (laughs) Even if each disciple had his own cup at the table, it does not change the fact that they were commanded. And I just pounded my desk there. I don't know if you heard it. To drink from the one cup with Jesus handed them. And this is something that in the one cup group is considered to be a binding example. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now what does he go on to talk about there in verse 17? The tradition of how the Lord's Supper is to be observed. The Apostle Paul admonishes the church in Corinth and Christians throughout all time to keep the traditions just as he delivered them. Well, how did he deliver them? In verse 23 of the same chapter, he says he received from the Lord that which he also delivered to you. So why do we keep those traditions just as they were delivered? Because they came directly from God himself. The Lord revealed to Paul. Paul revealed to us. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup. Now, how many did he take? He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, or do this, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So then I would ask this question, this do. What's another way you could say this do? Do this. This is a command to do what Jesus did. Once again, one cup is commanded. And then we get into the symbolism of the cup. Well, why is that cup important? It's because the cup itself, from the one cup perspective, is a symbol. And in Matthew 26, these are some notes that I had in uh, one of my old sermons on this idea. It's symbolic of that new covenant. In Matthew 26 and 28 and in Mark 14 and 24, where Jesus says, this is my blood, the word this grammatically and logically refers to the grape juice inside the cup. The grape juice represents the blood of Christ. This is my blood of the new covenant in verse 28 means the blood that ratifies the new covenant. So what this, I would take that to mean back in the day is that the blood is one thing and the new covenant is another thing. They're two separate items. Deeper study revealed that that is actually not the case, and we'll get into that later. But for years, for almost 15 years, well, a little over 15 years, I believe that there's a delineation between the blood of the covenant and the covenant itself in terms of the Eucharist. That the cup represented the covenant, the blood represented, or the blood was represented by the fruit of the vine, and that they were two separate entities, each with their own degree of spiritual significance. 
And the way I used to explain this is, is if we only had Matthew and Mark, we wouldn't know what the cup represented. We wouldn't know it represented anything. But with Matthew and Mark, we only know what the grape juice represents. But Luke focuses on the container. He focuses on the cup and explains that it represents the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant, means the cup represents the new covenant. In my blood means that it's ratified by the blood of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, 25, if we go back to that passage, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup represents the new covenant. And if we take that and we apply it to Jesus and his sacrifice, we see three things happening on Calvary. His blood or his body is sacrificed. Number two, his blood is shed. And number three, the new covenant became ratified. And in the communion, you see three things that remind us of those three significant items. You have one loaf of bread, which represents his body. You have the grape juice, the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. And then you have the one cup that represents the new covenant. You see three elements in the Lord's Supper that tie to the three events that transpired on Calvary. The emphasis is not on the fruit of the vine only. The emphasis, the spiritual significance is placed on the container itself. Furthermore, I would argue that the one cup fulfills the meaning of the word communion. To commune means to participate jointly, to share something together. Communion and individual, if you use individual communion cups, it's an oxymoron. The individual and communion are antonyms. They have opposite meanings. It's impossible to have individual communion just as it's impossible to have something be blue and red at the same time. The word communion requires the use of only one loaf and one cup. That is what I believed for a very, very, very long time. I believe that Jesus' commandments and the example of the apostles necessitated and absolutely proved that one cup is absolutely the way things should be done. And to deviate from that is to go against what God ordained. I believed it for a long time. And what I just went over very, very quickly is not super in-depth, but it hits all those high points of why I believe that. So according to your logic and the way that you were understanding things back then, it wasn't only a matter of this is a command, this is an example, but also this had great spiritual significance of what this represented. And and that's something when I first started studying the one-cup position years ago that I didn't really realize that those in the one-cup movement it's more than just this is a command and example. There is spiritual significance attached to partaking of that one container. And so to not take of one cup, all of a sudden you're taking away an important aspect, a spiritual aspect of what the Lord's Supper is all about. And I remember talking to others, this was before you and I met, and they said, well, it'd be the same thing as if you decided you just didn't want unleavened bread anymore. You just didn't want to, you know, you just decided we're not going to use that anymore. We're not, it's, it's taking away in that position a symbol of the Lord's Supper. And so the traditional view in the churches of Christ, at least the mainstream churches of Christ, is that there are two elements in the Lord's Supper, the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. Whereas in the one cup, it's not just the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread. It's the unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine, and the one cup, which represents the one covenant of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and in discussions that I would have with with folks that were in the main line, what we would call digressives, and I may use that term in this episode, and I want to make it abundantly clear that I am not using that term as a pejorative at all. If I do use that term, it is descriptive and representative of 
the position that I held to before just to help delineate just to delineate who that is. So if that word comes out of my mouth because I'm just flying through this and I'm talking fast, I don't mean it in a pejorative sense at all whatsoever. And I don't believe it's any more a digression from scripture than, than anything else is. I mean, it's at this point, the assertions that are made by the one cup position, I just, I just don't think they hold any water, much less fruit of the vine at all, but we'll, we'll get to that point. Yeah. 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 You like that, but yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But I mean, in conversations I'd have with people though, they would, this is one of those things that's really weird to argue about because people would say, well, what about the plate for the loaf? Huh? What are you going to do? I mean, is it okay to pass a loaf? Well, there's, who cares if you have a plate or not? There's no spiritual significance made to a plate. There's no need for a plate. You can just pass the loaf like a, like a Frisbee made out of flour and oil and salt you know, and seared in a pan or baked in an oven, you can just pass it from hand to hand if you want to, or you can put it on a plate. The plate's an expedient. There's nothing mentioned about a plate in the scripture. There's nothing there at all, which is interesting to me because if we're going to say that silence forbids a particular practice, if there's nothing mentioned about a plate, well, then we really can't use a plate, can we? But no, we're, we're not going to go that far. But then we would talk about the table. Well, do you have to have a table? Well, yeah, it talks about the table of the Lord in the Bible. And, you know, they were at a table whenever they observed the Lord's Supper. So you have to have a table, but there's no spiritual significance ascribed to a table. It's just, it's really weird. And it gets into that arbitrariness and inconsistency that you and I have talked about so much. But well, this, I, is, I can, this is just a weird conversation. And it's a, in retrospect, in hindsight, it's just, it's a really weird thing to argue about. Well, I can really see, though, how someone can believe that, especially if they were conditioned to believe so, whether it was a conversion, or in, which was your case, or whether it was someone who was, who was raised to believe that. I've, I've been trying to do a lot more study on just psychology and where our beliefs come from and why we believe what we believe and how we, we all tend to want to think that we are great logicians and that we're able to parse through any text that comes in our way and that we're able to make these objective decisions. And and the more that I study just myself, the more that I study and look at my own experience, but then also the more I study research and see this phenomenon on how we all think that our, our beliefs are right, a lot, so much of that has to do with doctoral conditioning. And, but when you, when you understand being raised in that environment, are being taught, look, we believe in doing what the Bible says. We believe that our relationship with the Lord is dependent upon our obedience to Him. And our obedience is an expression of how we love Him. And so no matter how ridiculous, no matter how inconvenient a practice or a command may seem, if it's what the Bible teaches, if you're a dedicated Christian, you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. This is what Jesus said. He said to take of the one cup, to take of the cup. It's always singular. It's never plural. There's spiritual significance to it. And and usually it's always capped off with a little fear, not just this belief, but pretty much any type of dogmatic legalistic belief is is capped off with. And just in case we need to do this, because this is this just in case, wouldn't it be better to do this? Uh, and and realize that you didn't have to, then to not do it, and then get before God and realized you were supposed to, and yeah. though and so when you have all that in combination, I mean you you've got the conditioning going on, you you've got Bible verses you can quote, you've got spiritual significance, you've got fear, you've got all these things at play, 
And so, yeah, I can clearly understand why someone would believe that because they think they're following God. And even if there's some question in the back of their mind of, well, do I really have to do this? It's easy to fall back usually on that. Well, I'd rather be safe than sorry. Oh, exactly. And I really liked how you put that, man. And I'm so glad you talked about um, inherited beliefs and you talked about doctrinal conditioning because, I mean, coming into this from my Pentecostal background, I mean, yeah, I mean, we talked about the, you know, the, we talked about the Bible all the time growing up. I mean, we did sword drills. We learned how to run reference. You know, we learned how to use a Strong's concordance. That was part of our homeschool curriculum whenever I was growing up. So I wasn't ignorant whenever it came to the Bible, but there was so much I was ignorant about as far as its application goes. And whenever I think ignorance plays a role in that doctrinal conditioning as well, because whenever I first began to study with my in-laws and we began to look at it, look at this, Everything that I just went through about the one cup and the scriptural position behind it, if you have never studied the communion at all, if that's something that you really never knew anything about, but you had the predilection in your mind, you know what? I want to do what the Bible says, and I it's it's imperative that I do the practices the right ways, because if I don't do the right things or wor- worship God, if I worship God the wrong way, my soul's at stake. So I don't want to worship God the right way or the wrong way, rather, I need to worship in the right way. And precision obedience plays into that. If you have no background about about the communion, about how it was established or the context behind it or anything else, you hear what I just said, and man, it can make a lot of sense. I mean, you Mm -hmm. say you understand how someone can believe that. Shoot, I believed it for over 15 years. Yeah. And I mean, there are still some convictions related to the cup that I still hold on to that we'll we'll get to in a moment. But it's uh, people that don't have that background whenever they hear it presented in such a way. It's it's real easy to be like, well, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. And on its surface, it does until you dive deeper. But mm-hmm. what the Bible says about it, it wasn't just limited to that for me. Um, if you look at the history of the one cup position there's there's a lot to be said about how things were done in lieu of the early church fathers. So it's it's recognized that in the early history of the church that one common communion cup was used whenever the communion was observed. And somewhere around between 70 and 107 AD, Ignatius is quoted as saying in a letter to the Philadelphians that there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and his blood which was shed for us as one. One loaf is also broken to all, the communicants, and one cup is distributed among them all. And that was in the Apostolic Fathers 81. Justin Martyr had something to say about it whenever he talked about the communion. He says, There is then brought to the president of the brethren bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. Justin Martyr goes on to describe the Mithras cult's imitation of the Eucharist. In Apostolic Fathers 185, he says, For that bread and a cup of water are placed with certain incantations in the mystic rites of one who is being initiated. You either know or can learn. Martyr went on to describe how deacons would carry portion of the emblems to people who couldn't get together with the church, to the sick, to the infirm. Um, H.M. Painter stated that this may have been done with multiple chalices and a broken loaf, but McClintock and Strong say that it was done by intention. They took the bread, they dipped it in the wine, and then they took the whole thing in one convenient package to anyone that couldn't meet with the saints. Arrhenius spoke about the bread and the cup as well. He talked about the cup of the blood in a consistently singular tone whenever he discussed the practice of the Eucharist. And in the post-Nicene period is whenever you begin to see multiple drink containers enter into the historical record. 
And you can read that in the Divine Liturgy of the Holy Apostle and the Evangelist Mark in Fathers 554. So even then, though, in multiple references in the post-Nicene area, you still see the cup referred to in a singular tense. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, said wine is put into the cup in his book on the sacrament. In uh, something that was cited by Calvin in Theodoret's ecclesiastical history, he said, How with such hands will you take up the sacred body of the Lord? How will you dare lift the cup of precious blood to your lips? Chrysostom talked about it in his various homilies. In homily 24, on his homily on 2 Corinthians 8 and 16, and I was planning on reading this, but I'm just, I'm not going to. If you want to look that up, you can. Um, Augustine of Hippo referenced the loaf and the cup in a singular fashion. Um, preachers within the one cup branch of the Church of Christ have asked various scholars of high repute about the use of a singular loaf and drinking vessel in the early church, and unanimously the answer was yes. Dr. Bradshaw of Notre Dame, Andrew McGowan of Yale, Dr. Lester Ruth of Duke, Dr. Fairbain of Gordon-Conwell Gordon Theological Seminary, Dr. Hurtado of the University of Edinburgh, all of these people that have been asked either by myself or by other preachers within the One Cup group have been asked about this, and every one of them answered yes. The Christians in the first century and later, some several hundred years later, observed the communion with one loaf and one cup. And this is something that would carry on even in the Protestant Reformation. We see Martin Luther reference it. We see John Calvin reference it. We see this referenced over and again, this practice of a singular cup being used in the communion service. And that would continue until around the 1890s in America. And at that point, the churches of Christ began to argue about this idea. The disciples of Christ and Christian churches introduced them shortly after their creation and um, Dr. J.G. Thomas invented a device that made filling individual communion cups really easy. It made it really efficient. The Episcopals and the Methodists began to utilize the individual communion cup in their services in the 1890s. And in the late 1800s and early 1900s, G.C. Brewer is a preacher within the Churches of Christ that is known as the preacher who spearheaded the effort to install them. And he met with a great deal of resistance. And I know you know all this history, but our listeners may not. But he was met with a lot of resistance until David Lipscomb said that it wouldn't be a digression from the ancient pattern to do so. And at that point, they were largely accepted within the Churches of Christ with the exception of those within what would become the One Cup group. It led to a really ugly split within the Churches of Christ. The larger, larger group formed the mainline Churches of Christ, or what we would have called the digressives, and the smaller formed the One Cup Churches of Christ. And that division, it's still ugly, man. There are some places where it's still... It, there's no exemplification of the spirit of Jesus in that, in the minds of many and in the hearts of many. There's still a lot of vitriol. There's a lot of venom that is spewed. But the reason why I held to that position, it wasn't just the scriptural position on it and what I believe the Bible taught at that time. It was also what history bore out. And even now, even having left that behind and even now being you know, a member of a different church, that does not use one loaf and one cup anymore. Mm -hmm. I still hold to some convictions about the cup. I still do believe that there is a lot of symbolic punch in this use of a singular loaf and a singular cup than there is in using individual loaves and cups. And I really do believe that there is a greater sense of community whenever everyone partakes of that loaf and of that cup. I don't believe it's a sin. I don't believe it's a deviation. I don't believe that it is a 
violation of any scriptural mandate for any group of Christians to use one loaf and one cup whenever they observe the Lord's Supper. I, I think that's all well and good. I'd still believe that it's the best representation of how the practice was conducted in the early church. But one of the questions that I couldn't help but ask, and even whenever I was still operating within that framework, that mindset of this is how Jesus did it and this is what I must do to be pleasing unto God, there were some questions that began to formulate in my mind. One of them relates to Luke. Whenever we go back to Luke 22 and we look at the establishment of the Lord's Supper, man, one of the things that confused me tremendously was in verse 17, you see Jesus take a cup and he says, take it and divide it among yourselves. And then he takes the loaf and says that it's his body. And now I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. We always talk about, we always practice this where we take the loaf first and then we take the cup because that's the order it's done in. And whenever you're, sorry, got tongue tied. Whenever you read Matthew's account and you read Mark's account, that's what you see happen. The loaf is taken first and then the cup is taken. But in Luke's case, you have the cup and then you have the loaf. And then it gets even more confusing because after Jesus takes the loaf, then he takes the cup again. And so I remember asking a, um, uh, a preacher within the One Cup Church, I remember asking him, what is going on here? I mean, did Jesus take the cup first and then take the loaf and then take the cup again? Like, what happened there? And he explained to me, well, this was done in the context of the Passover. This was a Passover meal. And within the Passover, there were four different ritualistic cups that are used. And the cup that they used was the third cup, the cup of blessing. And so here where Jesus takes the cup and says, take it and divide it amongst yourselves, that's a reference to the second cup. And then whenever he takes the cup after supper, well, that second cup that we read about in Luke's account, where he takes the cup again after the bread, well, that's the third cup. Well, okay, well, that made sense to me. And then I started looking at the Passover because in the one cup group, the statement is made in the, the, uh, what's the word I want to use? The logic to justify one cup. We also would look at the Passover as well. We'd say, you know, one of the things that you would say is, and, and you said this in your debate with brother Johnny back in the day, whenever you guys did your debate over the cup is that you believe in the one cup. It's the one cup that we all partake of. And, the way that we would argue against that is, is, well, no, this is, these are edicts that are given on a congregational level and they're given on a congregational level, much like the Passover was held on a household level, one lamb per household, one cup per congregation. Yeah. So you saw that more as a, a shadow almost of the Lord's yeah, Supper. Exactly. And so it, within the one cup group, there's a lot of context that's applied to the Lord's Supper that comes from the Passover. So I started looking at the Passover and I found that this preacher was partially correct, but he wasn't fully correct. It turns out that the cup that Jesus took before supper was actually the third cup and the cup that they all partook of was the third cup. And as I began to look at this, one of the things that became clear to me is that the, that <laughs> if I may, the digressives were right. Because one of the arguments that would always be made, and I didn't really find it to be that convincing of an argument until I did more reading about it, is that the idea of the cup is as a metonym. 
And what a metonym is, is it's one thing that represents something else. And we all understand what that means. Whenever you're listening to the news and you hear someone say, the White House stated today that, you know, gun control will be high on President Biden's agenda. You know that the White House itself didn't move its doors and words didn't emanate from the literal White House. The White House is used as a metonym to represent the president. And so the case would be made by our brethren within the mainline churches that whenever the statement cup is used and whenever Jesus talks about the cup and the cup is utilized, well, he's using this as metonymy. The cup represents its contents. And we would always say, well, no, we would say that's not the case because Jesus picked up a literal cup. And that cup has literal spiritual significance. You can't just pick up fruit of the vine in your hands. It has to be in a container. And so there are two items that are inseparable from one another. But furthermore, if it's being used as a metonymy, then what do we make of these sayings within the Eucharist where the cup is stated as being the new covenant in my blood in, in Luke's account? Mm-hmm. So, And do you mind if I interject? A yeah, yeah, here? please go ahead. I think you see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where yes, absolutely. Uh, Paul says it's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ, and it's not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. And there, for lack of better words, you only see two elements. You don't see Paul mentioning three elements uh, as far as what the, what the symbols are, what these elements represent symbolically. You have the, the cup, which represents the blood of Christ, and then you have... Uh, but it also talks about the bread that ta- is the body of Christ. But you don't you don't see Paul making this third symbolic element of oh, and then you have the container. <laughs> yeah, that you know that because because here it he he says the cup is the blood of Christ, and and that obviously is a view that I don't know if, I don't know anybody who actually believes the cup is the blood of Christ. It would be, well, it's it's the, the new covenant, but it's not the actual blood of Christ because that's what the fruit of the vine is supposed to represent. Well, if the fruit of the fruit of the vine is supposed to represent the blood, and then Paul says that the cup represents, um, or what what's the cup is the blood of Christ. Well, is it the actual cup or is it the contents of the cup? Well, and I think that from 1 Corinthians 10, that's a huge point. But from the one cup position, they'd say, well, yeah, Paul does speak to the spiritual significance of the cup whenever he gets to chapter 11. Whenever he gets to chapter 11 and then he says, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, this due in remembrance of me. Well, there's your three elements right there. Just because he didn't reference it over here in 1 Corinthians 10 doesn't mean it doesn't have spiritual significance. But one thing that I think is often overlooked is that whenever we make an assertion about what the Bible says, the Bible can never mean something or a scripture can never mean something that was never meant to mean. It has to mean whatever it meant to the writer. It has to mean whatever it meant to the audience. And sometimes to decipher what that is, you do have to do a deeper dive. One brother that we have mentioned um, a few times on this podcast is Brother Dallas Burdett. Now, Dallas Burdett, for those of you that may not have listened to those other episodes in which we have mentioned him, he is a bona fide biblical scholar. He was a member of the One Cup No Sunday School Churches of Christ, the same brotherhood that I was a part of for so long, and he was surreptitiously disfellowshipped from that group. Well, Dallas, and I don't want to tell his story. We're going to try to have him on the podcast. He wanted to make sure that he was correctly 
you know, studying the scriptures. He was correctly applying them. He was rightly dividing the word. So he started taking Bible classes. He went to seminary. He ended up getting a bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, I think, and I may be speaking out of turn, but he also got uh, his PhD. He got his doctorate and he taught biblical Hebrew and Greek at the university level for, for quite, quite a bit of time. He's, he's up there in years now. He's since retired from that, but he still does a lot of work. And I'm going to link two of his articles in the show notes for this episode because they do a deep, deep, deep dive into the grammar of these Eucharistic sayings in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, and also in 1 Corinthians. So this is what Dallas had to say about metonymy. And I never really understood the argument. It always seemed like that whenever this discussion would take place about metonymy, it would devolve into uh, one of these uh-huh, nuh-uh, uh-huh, nuh-uh kind of things, kind of like you're in second grade and arguing about something with a with a schoolyard bully. <laughs> It's like, well, yeah, it's a metonymy. The cup represents the context. Well, no, it doesn't. Jesus took a literal cup. Did Jesus take a figurative cup? No, he took a literal cup. And you can't have a metonymy without something literal to refer to it as. Whenever you use your White House analogy, there's a literal White House you're talking about. And blah, 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 and on it goes. Whenever you do a deep dive into the grammar, one of the things that you find is that the cup is used absolutely. All right, first of all, let me say this. Did Jesus take a literal cup? Yes, he did. But is that cup referred to in a literal sense in terms of spiritual significance? Or is it referred to as a metonym for its contents? Grammatically, in the Greek, in syntax, that is absolutely true. If we're going to make an assertion that there are three items of spiritual significance on the Lord's table, then the scriptures should back that up no matter how deeply you dive into that. If we look at it on a surface level, we might be able to take that meaning away. If we go a little bit deeper, we should still be able to take that conclusion away. If we go even deeper than that and we get into the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty as Dr. Burdett does, well, then the same thing should hold true. We should see that consistently no matter how deep we go. But if we see something that flies in the face of those conclusions, what do we do? Do we move the goalpost? Do we change what we think? Do we change our minds and accept what we have discovered as truth? Or do we double down on our dogmatic position? Do we try to engage in special pleading or some other type of fallacious reasoning to explain it away? What do we do? How do we approach that? So this is this is what Dr. Burdett has to say. Do you have anything you want to add to that before we dive in? No, no. And, and yeah, I think that when you look at just the concept of autonomy, you're right. Usually it's just two ships passing each other when this conversation is had because those who believe this is representative of, of the blood uh, will say, well, it's it's the, the, the cup actually is talking about the contents. It's not talking about the cup itself. And then as you pointed out, the argument will be, well, yeah, but it was it was a physical container that they had. And when you look at Luke 22, one of the things that I did when I debated Brother Johnny Elmore is I said, replace the word container with cup and see what you get. And then replace the word uh, I'm sorry, replace the word cup with container and see what you get, and then replace the word cup with fruit of the vine and see what you get. And it works every single time with fruit of the vine, but when you replace it with container, it, it doesn't work. Take this container and, and, and divide it among yourself. Well, is it the actual container? 
Um, and this, this is one of the points I brought up was Jesus wanting them to actually take a physical container, cut it up into 12 different pieces and pass it around and say, well, no, it's the container I want you to pass. Or was it the contents within the container that that was to be divided? And so when you break that down, and I know you're going to get into this in a little just here in a moment, but that's just an exercise, not just in this for this subject, but any type of study when you're when you've been challenged and someone has told you that they believe it's metonymy, then just replace what they're saying they think it represents and ask, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Or is it the actual physical item under consideration? Or is it what's being spoken about? And you, you, when, when you do that, at least to me, it becomes a lot more clear of what really the author has under consideration. Well, and that is a much simpler approach, but the question would then still be asked as a counter to that, well, did Jesus take a cup or didn't he? Well, yeah, yeah, he did, but that's not what we're getting at. Jesus took a cup and he said, do this. And we'll talk about that in just a minute because that was the second domino that fell for me. But see, well, in, order, this, and in order to have metonymy, you actually do have to have something it represents too. Absolutely. So, so, so it wouldn't make sense if there there had to be a physical cup. <laughs> you know, in, in other words, it wouldn't make sense. You know, if you if, if you as you pointed out, using different illustrations, um, I've always liked the illustration when someone um, you know just makes mention of something, and and there has to be something there that you're paralleling it to. Jesus had to have a physical cup, otherwise, you couldn't have used metonymy to begin with. Metonymy demands that there's that there be something. Uh, that you are using to signify what you're describing, but it's not actually what you're talking about that's under consideration. It's the contents or the symbol or et cetera, et cetera, whatever it represents. So, yeah, and you almost sound like a one-cupper there because, I mean, in that symbol, it's that new covenant. That's what it is, Kevin. But there it, is a symbol. There is a symbol. There it is. It's, it's the covenant. It's the covenant. The covenant. And the covenant. In any case, though, it's it's one of those things where there are two assertions at play here. Number one, Whenever the Lord's Supper was established, did Jesus and all of the disciples gathered around that table, in fact, all drink from one common cup, did they? The assertion is made by not just the one cup branch, but by those in other religious groups as well, that yes, that is what they did, but that is other groups would say that's not a binding pattern for us today, whereas the one cup group would say, yes, it is a binding pattern for us today. But the question is, is, is that actually what happened? And then the second assertion is that the cup itself, the container has spiritual significance. Is that the case? Because if the cup itself has spiritual significance, well, then the metonymy argument doesn't really work because the cup in and of itself must be a pointer to that new covenant. So this is what Dr. Burdett said. And brother, this blew my mind. This, the way you describe metonymy, it makes a whole lot more sense now, but I wasn't ready to accept that at that time. I didn't find that very compelling, even though it's very simple, it's very elegant and it's effective. I didn't recognize its effectiveness because I had been conditioned against it. But well, whenever- I, th- I think, I think that, uh, and the reason I think you, you weren't convinced is because you still believe that there were three symbols Yes. The Lord's Supper. To, to me, that's that's the biggest thing to get around. Yeah. Uh, if if you if someone is still within that one cup mindset, because because see, I didn't understand that prior until I really started studying and even for the for the debate, which now has been, believe it or not, over I think twelve years ago now, which is crazy. Yeah. But 
I, I think that a lot of people miss that because from, from my perspective, I'm like, well, this is so easy. Like, like, you know, Paul talks about this as, a, as, as, you know, being, being symbolic of just the fruit of the vine or the blood of Christ and the body of, of Christ. And Jesus talks about this being the blood and the body. I mean, this is so simple. There's two elements here. What's up with a cup? And, and I do, I, I, I can see, and I think those who are listening, especially those who are still within the one cup movement are probably saying, yeah, but there's three elements, there's three elements. And so, you know, I, I can see why that argument from, of metonymy would not be convincing under the framework or within the framework that there are still three elements, because you almost have to get to the point of seeing, okay, well, there's only two elements. And when you believe that, that completely changes everything you've been taught about the Lord's Supper. No, dude, you're exactly right. You're exactly spot on with that because that was the biggest hang up I had is that you have these three spiritually significant items here. And whenever those blinders are on, it makes it hard to see everything. So the question, is that cup spiritually significant? That was the first domino to fall. And I know we keep beating around the bush and we keep saying this is what Dr. Burdett had to say about it. He does a deep, deep dive into the Greek. He has three different articles that he references that we are linking below. I strongly encourage you, if you have an interest in this, to read this stuff. The dude knows his stuff. He's legit. Anyway, he says this. Sometimes we come away with the idea that Jesus handed his disciples a literal cup and that they all drank from the same literal cup that touched his lips. And I would say, well, sure, that's what Mark says. They all drank from it. Is that really the case? He goes on to say, Gapelt in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that each person present at the Passover had his own cup. Quote, they are all to drink of this cup or less probably to fill their own cups from it. The common drinking unites the disciples in table fellowship under the saying uttered with this cup. The expression this cup does not refer to one literal container for the whole group, but rather to the formal drinking of the third cup, which is called the cup of blessing. Earlier, we had talked about the different cups that they would utilize in the Passover feast, that there were four cups. This idea of drink from it, drink from this cup, Dr. Burdett says, has to do with that third cup. He says it was the formal drinking of the third cup, which is called the cup of blessing. The Apostle Paul refers to the cup of blessing. This cup is equivalent to the third filling of their individual cups. Four different times during the Passover, they filled their cups. Each filling was referred to by a particular name. Number one was the cup of consecration. Number two, the cup of proclamation. Number three, the cup of blessing. And number four, the cup of Hallel. Even though each person had his own cup, this drinking still represented the disciples in United Table Fellowship. Whether one drinks from the same container or from his own individual cup, one still participates in table fellowship, a fellowship that commemorates the death of Jesus and his resurrection. So Dr. Burdett says, yeah, they all had their own cup. And whenever they all poured those cups or whenever they all partook of the cup and they all drank from it, that's not a reference to a literal cup that Jesus held in his hand, that's a reference to that symbolic cup, to that um, cup of blessing that they would pour from and that they would all partake of. And we know they did that because we know that's how the Passover was celebrated in Jesus's time. Dr. Burdett goes on to quote Gapelt as he writes, 
Whether the interpretation begins with tuotu tupaterion, this cup, the Greek, in Paul and Luke's case, or tuotu alone in Matthew and Mark's case, it refers not to the cup, but to its contents, the wine. Nevertheless, the second element in the Lord's Supper is almost always called the cup rather than the wine in the New Testament. Again, Gapelt states in Luke 22, 20, the cup is used as a metonym for what it contains. Whether we say, this is my blood or this cup, we are saying the same thing. The emphasis upon the or is upon the wine as representative of the new covenant, not a literal drinking vessel representative of the covenant. Among the one cup fellowship, they speak of the literal container as representative of the new covenant, not the contents. Now, if anybody would know, it'd be, it'd be Dallas Burdett because he was a preacher in the one cup group for about as long or if not longer than I was. But the question that we need to ask is, well, is that truly the case? Could the quote digresses have been right about metonymy all this time? Because this paints a pretty clear picture. It seems to be pretty straightforward to me. But then you still have that old chestnut, well, did Jesus pick up one literal cup or not? Well, Dr. Burdett, he addresses this as well. He says, the confusion often results from the phraseology, the noun that's used in the genitive case. He gets into he gets into some grammar stuff here. So, guys, hopefully this doesn't make your eyes gloss over. If you have a hard time falling asleep, just put a bookmark on this part of the episode, and maybe it'll help you go to sleep later. Hopefully you're as interested in it as we are. But in any case, Dr. Burdett says, the noun that's used in the genitive case in English is what leads to this confusion. He says, the Greeks often use the genitive of a noun instead of an adjective. In English, one is more likely to say, this is my covenant blood, rather than this is my blood of the covenant. By changing this phrase to covenant blood, then the word covenant is employed as an adjective, not as a noun in the genitive. A noun in the genitive expresses possession. Not only is the blood representative of the covenant, but at the same time, the blood of Christ also seals this new relationship between God and humanity. It's a relationship based not on works, but on the finished work of Christ upon Calvary. So in essence, what Dr. Burdett is saying is, is that the grammar here, the way that the Greek is constructed, means that this is that this should be used as an adjective. Translating it into English, it should say, this is my covenant blood. And if anybody would know, it's him, but he goes on even further. He says, many Christians apply an English rule of grammar to Luke's cup saying rather than Greek syntax. That is to say, the participle modifies the nearest noun. For example, a common translation of Luke twenty-two twenty is as follows. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you in the King James. In the King James Version, which is shed for you is a non-restrictive adjectival clause with the relative pronoun which. An adjectival clause may be introduced with relative pronouns such as that or which. In this English translation, the participle shed or poured out is nearer the word blood, not cup. Thus, according to the English rules of grammar, poured out modifies its nearest antecedent, blood. Now, that's a lot to say that in the Greek, you can take that position and it makes sense. But with Greek syntax, as stated above, the participle does not necessarily modify its nearest antecedent. As in English, but rather, its nearest antecedent in Greek must be the same case, number, and gender. 
Now, this idea here about case number and gender, dude, this is what blew my mind. And this is what convinced me, holy smokes, the metonymy argument is the more scriptural argument. This is what blew my mind. And it's like, well, of all things, as you're probably thinking, man, I just laid this out so simply and that wasn't enough. But talking about case number and gender in <laughs> Greek, that makes sense to you. Well, okay, then. So. In other words, the, the participle in Greek, unlike in English, must refer to the noun or pronoun of the same case, the same number, and the same gender. For example, the present passive participle, present case, passive number, it, it, being shed is Luke, or in Luke rather, is nominative case, singular number, and neuter gender. Therefore, the noun to which the participle in Luke refers must also be the nominative case, singular number, and neuter gender. In other words, that stuff has to match or it doesn't make any sense whatsoever in Greek grammar. It makes no sense whatsoever. Grammatically, the only word in this sentence that the participle can modify is cup. The noun cup or paterion is nominative case, singular number, and neuter gender. So the idea of what is being shed in case number and gender matches the cup in case number and gender. What that means is that the cup is being shed in Greek syntax. You can't shed a literal cup. You can't break up. Like you said, Jesus didn't tell them to break up the literal cup and distribute it amongst themselves. They didn't break up the container. The container represents its content. And whenever this idea of case number and gender, I first read this, dude, it threw me for a loop and it it blew my mind. Well, you're talking about the simplistic argument versus getting in depth and kind of pretty much coming to the same conclusion, but getting there a different way and looking at it in a little more detail. And I think what that demonstrates is not just interpretive pluralism, how so many Christians can go to the Bible and come away with conflicting interpretations, which historically Christianity has always done that. And currently we still do that today, but it, but it also teaches us that oftentimes we arrive at the same conclusions, but we have to go different paths to get there based upon yeah. where we're coming from. You know, it was, it didn't take as much to convince me that using multiple cups is okay because I was never conditioned to believe it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and so for me, it's like, well, yeah, you know, that that's, it's like when I talk about instrumental music, I mean, you know, I've went through and gave a few lessons and, and some people listen, they're like, well, I, you know, I've just, I never even heard it's wrong. <laughs> and so yeah. for, for them, they didn't have to go through the journey of deconstructing and reconstructing to figure out, okay, you know, what really, really, this is why I believe that I can do this, or this is why I believe that it's okay. They didn't have to go through all that because they didn't have all of the same barriers put in front of them than, than I had, that I had in front of me. And it, the thing is the same way with you, with this issue is that to me, I'm like, well, yeah, metonymy. I mean, if I say, if I have, I have one water bottle and I may say, well, I had eight bottles of water today. Well, not only did I not literally drink bottles, I drank the contents of those bottles, but it was only one physical bottle that I actually used to have eight bottles. And so to me, you know, it's like, well, yeah, metonymy, this is simple to understand. This is what Jesus is talking about, because that's how I was taught to believe. And yeah. and, and so I think this demonstrates that whatever issue, because some people, they may not be as interested in instrumental music or the one cup or whatever issue it might be. But whatever your 
issue is, whatever your holdup is or whatever maybe you're struggling with right now doctrinally that you've studied it and it, it seems to make sense, but you have to study a little bit more. You have to get a little more convinced because of your conviction of where you came from and you're, you're wanting to dig a little bit deeper. Those conversations, those studies are necessary. That's where I was at with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You know, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, this is kind of common sense when you understand who Jesus is and and, and, and you understand kind of the narrative of scripture and forgiveness and, rec- and, and all those types of things. But uh, for me, I'm like, no, I, I had to dig deep because of the legalistic view I was taught. I really had to go a lot deeper than most people. And that's what you had to do with this. You had to go a lot deeper than most people because of what you were taught to believe. Well, it's not just that. It's it it ties into metonymy itself. You know, I I'd always heard, well, no, it's a metonymy. The cup for its contents will know because of this, this, and this. And then you have these different hermeneutic <laughs> wranglings that take place to to explain why it's not being used as yeah, a metonymy there. And I mean, I read a ton of different content on that and I'm I've left, you know, even more confused about it. And I'm thinking if it is a metonymy, then that should be clear whenever you really dig in. And whenever you dig into the Greek and you look at the syntax, the the question is, is it metonymy or is it not? Is the cup referred to and is value ascribed to it in a non-literal, metaphorical, metonymical way, or is it not? It's, It's that simple. Either it is or it isn't. So if it is well, then we should be willing to accept that that's the case. If it isn't, well, then we should be willing to accept that we need to use one cup whenever we observe the communion. But whenever you look at Luke's account, the in my blood is singular number, neuter, gener, and dative case. It's a different case. It's singular number, neuter, gender, but it's not the nominative case. So in Luke's account, it can't be what is being shed or being poured out can't refer to blood. It has to refer to the cup. The cup is being used metonymically. Jesus is referring to it in that. But if you look at Matthew and Mark's account, it's different. The words are, this is my blood that is poured out. In Matthew and Mark, Dr. Burdett says, the attributive participle modifies blood. Blood is equivalent to this since blood is a predicate nominative. But the antecedent of this is it, and the antecedent of it is cup. Both blood and cup are nominative case, singular number, and neuter gender. That right there blew every compunction I had against the metonymy (laughs) argument out of the water. Blood and cup are both in that nominative case, singular number, and neuter gender. The rule of Greek syntax confirms that it is blood that is poured out in Matthew and Mark, but in Luke, it's the cup that's poured out. Thus, the cup in Luke is equivalent to blood in Matthew and Mark. Now, let let me ask you this, Lee, because I know there's people listening to this who, or I would assume there's people listening to this who who disagree with with you. They still believe in the one cup, okay, the one physical container. And their response is, first of all, they may not even understand what you've just said. Maybe, you know, they're sitting here and they're thinking, well, I'm not a Greek person. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't study Greek. And certainly if God wanted to, to make it clear, wouldn't he have just done that? I, I mean, I mean, you're having to go all to these original languages and, and, and I've heard other people go to the original language and say the opposite and, and say that it's okay. And, and it's just all confusing to me. And I hear people say this a lot. And, and what is your response, which we've covered this in other podcasts before, but 
what is your response when someone says, well, I just should just be able to go to the Bible and it should just be easy for me to just understand? Well, I would say that it takes a little more work than that to actually ascertain what's in the Bible. Because like you and I have said, if we just take it at face value, we're not going to resist anybody if they ask us of anything. We have to give it to them. If our eye causes us a sin, we're going to pluck it out. If our hand causes us a sin, we're going to cut it off. And there's a lot of you know, two-handed, two-eyed people running around out there that ought not to be if that's actually the case. I mean, we recognize that there are idioms and figures of speech that play a role in that. My reply to what you just said, well, why didn't he just make it more clear is twofold. Number one, we need to be Greek scholars or have an idea of how that works in order to really have a real understanding of it. Because even though we might need to have that knowledge or read after people that have that knowledge. Cause I'm not a Greek scholar, but Dr. Burdett absolutely is. He and I have had conversations about this. I've asked him questions about it. And there is no doubt in my mind that this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. The people in Jesus's day were not Greek scholars. They just spoke the language. That's the language they wrote in. That's the language they spoke in. That's the language. Those of them that could read, that's the language they read in many cases. So these are people that are just talking based on their rules of language, just like we write and talk based on the rules of our language. And we know what those rules are. So if the idea of metonymy is not, if it doesn't have a leg to stand on, then we should see that reflected in the language itself. And that to me is what makes it more ironclad for me is language either works this way or it doesn't. If this is the way that language works, then this is necessarily what it means. And if this is what it means, it can never mean anything that which it didn't mean. So yeah. it has to mean that. Well, the, and, and, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say the second argument that I would make against that is, well, you know, you know, why is this the case? Why couldn't he have just made it clear that that's what he meant? I would say that the opposite is actually true. If using one loaf and one cup is super critical to the saving of one soul, if you are putting your soul in literal jeopardy because of how you observe the communion, why isn't that point made super (laughs) abundantly crystal clear in scripture? Yeah. Because dude, you have God making things clear. If God wants to make it clear how he wants to be worshiped, he will make that clear. We've talked about that before as well. You look at tabernacle worship and temple worship and those rituals and how they were be to con- how they were to be conducted, who could serve as a priest, what tribe they came from, what they wore, how the temple was to be built, how the tabernacle was to be built, how it was to be furnished, the materials that needed to be used, what instruments you would play to bring the assembly together who could play those instruments and then you see that unfold and you see that evolve and change but in every instance you still see precision being given to those commandments my question would be if it is so critical to the salvation of your very eternal soul or i should say potentially eternal soul then why isn't it outlined specifically in that way I mean, well, is, yeah, that's it, well, I was going to say, and that, that's really where I was was going to go with it as well, is from our perspective, I would have asked the same question, but but in a completely different perspective. Well, if God really wanted us to only use one container, why didn't he make it clear? And 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 that's what's funny about asking what I call the clear question. You know, I'm just going to follow what's clear in Scripture and we'll you know, basically, our, whatever your position is, whatever your position is right now, it seems like the clear position, no, no matter yeah. what. If and, and, you know, if, if right now I think it's wrong for a woman to wear braided hair or gold or pearls, 
that's clear. It's clear the Bible says not to do that. And yep. and if and if God didn't want women, or if God did want women, if He did allow women to uh, wear braided their hair braided and gold and pearls, then He would He would have said so. But it's clear that He didn't. Well, it's equally clear for me contextually that that's not a big deal because of the culture at the time and other contextual clues. But the point in all of this is that when someone asks that question and say, well, Lee, this just seems so confusing. Why didn't God just make it easy? The problem with that is that is, as we just discussed, first of all, assuming that what is clear to you is clear to everybody else. But second of all, that's assuming that the Bible should be read in a as a constitutional law book manual that is universally clear and perpetual, perpetually clear for all time, and it's just not. Yeah, and and that's something that is is not necessarily off the topic. It's a different topic, but it gets into really what I believe is the root problem to a lot of these types of discussions. Because before we even enter into them, we already assume well, the Bible is going to be crystal clear and crystal clear meaning is what I already agree because that's what seems clear and familiar to me. But the second thing is when you talk about Greek scholarship, you know, I, I went to, I went to school. I graduated from East Tennessee school of preaching. It's now the Southeast Institute of biblical studies. It's a two year program. We took Greek, we took Hebrew. We took a few classes. I think, um, I don't even remember if I took Greek three or just Greek one and two. That shows you how much I remember <laughs> the classes I took. But, you know, the point is, is that I'm not a Greek scholar. I know how, I know how to, to look up Greek words, and I've got software where I can do that and look up definitions and things of that nature. But someone at once asked me, they go, well, Kevin, it seems like sometimes on any position you can find Greek schol- people using Greek scholars to their benefit. And, and that's true. Because people oftentimes are abusing the information that they have. It's the same thing with doctors today. I mean, how many times has has a husband or wife gone to a doctor, the doctor told them information, and the husband and wife came out and told their spouse what the doctor said to, to justify why either they need to do something or why they don't have to do something, and then later to find out they really weren't properly understanding what the oh, doctor yeah. doctor told them to do. That could be by choice. It could be by just a simple, honest misunderstanding. But what I do when I look at all this, I don't rely on my own study in the Greek. And if my own study in the Greek leads me to a conclusion that is contrary to the majority of Greek scholarship, then I'm going to probably go with the majority of Greek scholarship. You know, there, there has to be some, some reasoning that goes on and says, well, look, I'm not a Greek scholar and I've come to this conclusion, but the majority of Greek scholarship has come to this conclusion and they actually are Greek scholars. So who would you listen to? Kevin, who took, he doesn't even know how many Greek classes <laughs> and, and he's come to a conclusion that really no one ever has come to are the uh, the general consensus of scholarship. And that's really how study has always been done. And there's also a difference as well between interpretation of what we we see the text to mean versus the, the simple facts. You know, there's there's facts and there's interpretations of how to utilize those facts. What you're discussing is not an interpretation. This is how the Greek language works. This is yes. how the Greek language operates. And so this isn't Lee saying, well, this is one Greek scholar saying this and, and no other Greek scholar say this. This is what any Greek textbook, this is Greek 101. If you, if you, went to a, a Greek class 
uh, to, to learn just basics. This is one of the basic things you would learn. When it comes to when it comes to the the agreement in the Greek and those types of things, and that's what makes this such a powerful, um, for lack of a better term, pressure point for me. That's what made it so convincing because this isn't about grinding an axe. This isn't about you know wanting to use or disabuse the Greek. It's like language follows certain rules and patterns under which it operates and which it works. Greek follows these rules. And if these are the rules that Greek follows and based on some very brief follow-up, just legwork that I did just to see if that's the case, yeah, this is how it works. The conclusion then is, is that the cup is synonymous with the blood and not a literal container or vessel. That's not the meaning ascribed to it by Jesus himself. And we have a hard time understanding that, or we may because we're not Greek scholars, but I would venture to guess, and I would even be, if I were a betting man, I'd be willing to wager on it, that the people in Jesus's day that read and spoke Greek, this is how they would have understood it. I really believe that that's the case. But for me, within that old framework, that's where a lot of this began to begin to change for me. But even now under this new paradigm, there were some other constructs and other logical considerations that I had to make that just it it really helped solidify and cement this mindset or this um I don't want to use this term, but interpretive pattern for lack of a better term. Well, Lee, but, I have just before you get into that real quick, I have one question and I, I just want want your opinion on this. What what was the view at your time? Of, of passages like First Corinthians eleven, where Paul is rebuking them for, uh, for for literally getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, if if they were only coming together and had one container, clearly multiple people wouldn't have been able to to just sip from that and get drunk. And so, it what like just kind of simple. I won't call it simple context clues, but just kind of uh, observations like that. When you look at how Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper and when he's talking about these practices and Oh yeah. Yeah. So, well, in, and I'm, it's, it's leaving my mind now, if it's verse 17 or verse 18, but right there in first Corinthians chapter 11, it's either verse 17 or 18. The apostle Paul says now in this, in the following, I do not praise you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Um, he's like, whenever you're coming together, you're not observing the Lord's supper. He's basically saying, look, you guys have screwed this up. I gave you instructions on what you needed to do. I praise you that you have kept some of these traditions that I gave you, but these traditions concerning the Lord's Supper, you haven't done it because some of you are taking one supper ahead of your neighbor. One of you is hungry. Another one is well drunk, or you know, you've drank to the point where you've had your fill or you're intoxicated, however you want to take that. That's not the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is not observing the Lord's Supper is what Paul said. Here's what I delivered to you. I delivered to you the same thing that the Lord delivered to me. That Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in memory of me. So your, same, your argument would have been, well, we can't really use that because they they were not taking the Lord's Supper properly anyway. They weren't doing it anyway. The entire discourse that Paul goes into is to correct their behavior. Their behavior was yeah. wrong. So if they're all using their own meal and taking their own meal instead of the Lord's Supper, which I still believe that that's what they were doing, but that what that means in solid practice has shifted a little bit, but they, they weren't <laughs> doing it right to begin with. So Paul's correcting them. That's how I would have answered that. Yeah. So you're saying, well, even if they're using multiple containers, uh, Paul was correct in their behavior. They, they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing in the correct way. 
Oh yeah, and and one of the the preachers within the one cup group has even you know he has even said in the material he's publishing in preaching, in in those terms that what they were doing was taking their own supper. They weren't observing the Lord's supper, and by application. If you take a little cracker and a little thimble full of grape juice and you do that, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're taking your own supper. So he even you know, took it that much of a step further. Interesting. But, but for me, though, the, the logical, the, the implications of this to me are staggering. Just like you said earlier, if God's desire was to communicate that you absolutely must use one loaf and one cup in the Lord's Supper, and you do not deviate from that whatsoever. If you deviate from that at all, you are imp- you're potentially damning your soul for all eternity. Well, why isn't that point made super abundantly crystal clear in Scripture? After reading through the metonymy argument and looking at all that material, it became more apparent to me, well, okay, you know, even though the metonymy argument isn't all that convincing at first blush, it seems like there's a whole lot more force to it than than what I had previously considered. But also, what if you have someone who's never studied this idea? What if you have someone that, like you, inherited a particular set of beliefs related to the Lord's Supper that using multiple cups, multiple containers is no big deal, but they're completely sincere in following Jesus in every other way? And one of the ways I like to explain this is in a way that it it causes some question and it's caused some people to raise their eyebrows a little bit within the one cup group. And it's one of the things, and we keep talking about how we're going to do it. And I think it's the next episode we're going to record is the covering. And it's the idea that uncut hair is the covering. And that's something that, that has been taught within the, the one cup church for a very long time. And it's this idea that if you have a woman who sincerely follows Jesus, she loves God with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She reads her Bible. She takes care of the poor. She's exemplary wife. She's an exemplary mother. You know, she manifests the fruits of the spirit in her day-to-day walk. She pledges her, her devotion to Jesus in everything that she does, but she cuts her hair. In 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16, she never ever took that to mean that the covering is the hair and that hair must be uncut. If she steps into eternity and she stands before Jesus and he says, I saw you, you know, you saw me naked and you clothed me. You saw me hungry, but you gave me something to eat. You saw me thirsty, you gave me something to drink. But you see, you had bangs and you cut your hair to shoulder length. And that's not really acceptable because over here in 1 Corinthians 11, I had the Holy Spirit revealed to the Apostle Paul that women need to cover their hair and their hair is given to him for a covering. That covering must be uncut. And you didn't figure that out. So sorry about you. And then he pulls a lever and she drops into hell forever. That just that just didn't sit well with me. And so if you take that idea and you apply it to the cup itself, especially in terms of it not being as crystal clear as the one cup group wants to make it, well, what's the point that Paul's making? It's not abundantly clear that the point is make sure you use only one cup. If it's something that's that important, I would think that there would be more clarity given. And, and to me, it, it brings about the question, is Paul wanting to communicate this idea? Make sure, be double sure that you don't do anything different when you observe the Lord's Supper than using one loaf and one cup. And whenever you do that, make sure you only pinch a little piece off of the bread and hand the loaf to someone else. Don't break it in half and distribute it down both sides of the church house, whatever you do. And whenever you use it, make sure you use Welch's, even though it'll be another 1,800 years before that's made. Make sure you only use Welch's whenever you do it. Only use one loaf and one cup. You have to do it. 
Or was this point something else? And dude, this gets back into what you asked a minute ago, this idea of this unruliness and people taking their supper before one another. That's the point Paul's making in his discourse to the, to the church in Corinth. Their issue is that they're not waiting for one another. They're not remembering Jesus. They're not observing what it is that Jesus declared was important. And that's remembering him. The point that Paul's making is that Jesus is the center of the ritual. And there are some that have said, well, Jesus's point is to communicate this idea of do this. Well, what does do this mean? I had a discussion with a brother who's in the one cup group who was saying, well, Jesus still said, do this. And what did Jesus do? He picked up a cup and he handed it to him, which I don't even think he did that anymore. I think that it has to do with that participation of that one um, ritualistic third cup that they all partook of. I, I now believe that that's what that means. But Jesus' point was do this, pick up one cup and drink from it. Is that really what it means? Is that really what Jesus is stating? Do this, do it just like I'm doing it. Because if that's the case, we run into some problems. Because within the context of the Lord's Supper, you see it established in the context of the Passover. It was a Jewish holy day. It was executed in, in the context of a common meal as a love feast. It was established and observed in Scripture in an upper room. They reclined whenever they partook of it. They leaned on their left elbow and they all partook of the Passover in that way. They went out and they came in. They sang a hymn, went out into the Mount of Olives. It was held at night on the same night in which he was betrayed. We don't do any of those things. We don't observe the Lord's Supper on Passover. We don't hold it in the context of a holy meal. We don't observe it in an upper room like they did. We don't recline at the table like they did. We don't go out and come in like they did, even though there was a church that it was over either in Georgia or North Alabama that did that. We don't hold the communion at night as every passage in Scripture teaches that it was held and observed. In John's account of the Passover, in John's account of that Last Supper, in John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and tells them they ought to wash each other's feet. We don't do that too. We don't do those things either. And yet there are people that say, well, well, those things aren't spiritually significant. The emblems represent significant things, but we have already seen that the body and the blood of Jesus is what's represented. The cup wasn't even the thing that was represented. And I would even ask the question, what's more important, the image or the thing that it represents? What's more important, the bread on the table and the, the, the juice or wine in the cup or the one who broke his body on Calvary or whose body was broken on Calvary and whose blood was shed on Calvary? Which is more important there? To me, the things that are spiritually significant are Jesus himself what his work was, his atoning work on Calvary, his sacrifice on that Roman cross on your behalf and on my behalf. Those are the things that are important. If the modality of which this is observed was the important part that we needed to remember, this do, if that points to the, to the ritualistic practice itself and the mechanics of how that is observed, it seems that that would be more clear. But over and over and over again, you see the significance being Jesus and his redemptive act on Calvary for the sins of mankind. And that's what the communion service, that's what the Eucharist points to. And that's what it reminds us of to begin with. Do this in memory, in remembrance of Jesus. Do this doesn't mean you pick up this cup and you do it just this way. It has to do with what those things represent. And that is the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of all of us. Amen.
(laughs) (laughs) Well, with all of that being said, and we can get ready to wrap this up now. How does this relate to pursuing grace? You know, how does this relate to what our mission is on this podcast to explore faith? Because we've explored faith. We've looked at the one cup theology. We've looked at the one cup doctrine. We've looked at why I'm no longer convinced that's the case. And the main reason I'm no longer convinced that's the case, the grammar is what led me there. But at this point, parsing through all that to try to determine exactly God, how God wants us to do something, I don't believe that's how the Bible works, period. God wants us to live a holy life, and a holy life means loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and exemplifying that love to our neighbor, our fellow image bearers. I believe that God is more concerned about our hearts in our pursuit of him than he is in our ritualistic purity. Well, and and yes, and we even see this in 1 Corinthians 11, because why was Paul so upset? Why, why was he rebuking them? Because they weren't showing love for one another within the Lord's Supper, that they were deciding to just turn it into an everyday common meal, and they weren't waiting on each other. They weren't preferring one another. Uh, instead, they were being very selfish and that comes into play with, I believe, why Paul was so angry in this instance, because here was a time when they were supposed to all come together and think about what Jesus has done for them, to be able to share in that, to be able to encourage one another, to be able to examine themselves. And instead, they were really making a, a mockery out of it because they weren't showing love for one another in that instance. No, they weren't. And that's the entire point that Paul's making. I mean, if you look at his discourse in first Corinthians, I, you know, if we're just going to spitball, we'll start at chapter eight and go through verse, go through chapter 14. You see that Paul, he's, he's addressing their attitudes, not only towards worship, but their attitudes towards one another. And that's the issue. I mean, you can't read that and take away the idea, well, Paul wants to make sure that it's communicated universally and for all time that Christians will use one and only one cup when they observe the Lord's Supper. You can't say that that's the point that Paul's making because that's not the point he made. Yeah, <laughs> That's not the action that he was trying to correct. And, you know, and I, I still hear just swimming around in the background of my mind. Well, what about Nadab and Abihu? They weren't pure. Well, what about Eliezer and Ithamar? For every Nadab and Abihu, there's an Eliezer and Ithamar. For every Uzzah, there's a Hezekiah and his observance of the Passover. I mean, you've got Naaman the leper and Remen, him saying, you know, I'm going to have to help my king kneel before Remen. I'm going to have to help him rise up. I'm not going to worship him anymore. I'm going to go through that. Hey, Elijah, can I, Elijah, can I, can I take some of this dirt that you have over here and haul it back to me? A couple of mule loads of dirt so I can worship God and in Syria. Yeah, go ahead. Do it. You're good. God is a God of grace and mercy. God is a God of love and patience and compassion. And it just seems to me that if there is this idea of a one cup theology encoded within scripture, and that's absolutely what we need to do, then God is not just going to make that abundantly clear, but he's going to make the consequences of failing to do that abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that whenever those of the one cup persuasion, and I have no problem with them holding on to that, to that idea. I mean, they may hear all this. They may look at, you know, brother Dallas's articles. They may look at, at everything else. That's been put out on it. You know what? I'm still not convinced. I really believe the Bible is teaching that we should use one cup whenever we observe the Lord's Supper. That's awesome. Okay, cool. That's fine. If that is your conviction, then live that conviction. 
observe the Lord's Supper with one loaf and one common cup. That's awesome. That's fine. There's there's no issue there whatsoever. But whenever you begin to make this an in and out issue, when you begin to say, well, if you don't do it the way I do it and you don't hold the same opinion and conclusion on this as I do, well, then you're not a real Christian and that your soul is cast out and that you're apostate before God. I take great issue with that mentality. And one of the reasons I take great issue with that mentality is because it's a mentality that I espouse for so long. Even though I could be kind to others and even though I could extend graciousness to other people, brother, I still believe that you were bound for a devil's hell for all eternity because you used individual cups on the Lord's Supper years ago. I believe that 100%. And that attitude is a divisive attitude. It's an attitude that when promulgated stirs up discord among brethren. And that is one of the things that God says is an abomination to him. And it flies in the face of what Jesus said in John 13, where he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How do we know that we are in Christ as if we abide in him? John says in 1 John 4, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. I don't see anything in that or in any of those other statements that refer to who is in and who is out. I don't see anything about a cup there. So for me to jump on that high horse and say that unless you think exactly like I do, you're lost forever. That's not going to fly anymore. And that won't fly in the kingdom of God. So do we have anything else that we want to discuss in terms of that? Do you have any other any other questions about that one cup position? Any other remarks? Anything at all? Because that pretty much covers everything I wanted to cover in this. Sounds good to me. Groovy. Well, that is it then. Oddly enough, Kevin is speechless. How about it? That hardly ever happened. <laughs> well, if you listen this far and you didn't fall asleep during the part where we were talking about grammar, thank you all so much. We love all hey, of I, you. I'm just happy you ended up coming on coming around and changing you know i I knew you would find the truth eventually oh look at that digging man (laughs) 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 well and you you made mention of this i i guess uh one thing i do just want to reiterate you've already done a good job of this but if you believe this and this is something that you continue to practice by all means do that and and one thing that i never want to do lee never wants to do is make people feel like they have to change a practice that is not wrong in and of itself it's it's the there's nothing wrong using one container there's nothing wrong using uh, one loaf none of those things are of course sinful um it's a it's a it's a perfectly acceptable practice and for a lot of people there is significance to it and even for those like lee who've realized okay maybe the significance i was taught to have with a one cup is actually more tradition than it than it is biblical. It sometimes is still there for a lot of people. It still means something, um, and and it's important for people to keep that. And if if someone wants to do that, then please by all means continue to do it. It's just those lines of fellowship. It's condemning others who choose not to. That's that's where the issue comes in. 
Yes, and we've got to do better on all sides. And I mean, and dude, even at this point, that is still something that I tend to struggle with occasionally is this idea of castigating other people because they disagree with me. And a lot of that old lead sometimes pops up and I still want to prove how right I am rather than love somebody as Jesus loved them because it ain't up to them to get it all right. I mean, if if I have this part of things right, they don't have to necessarily agree with me in order to be right in the sight of God. Because I just wonder how many things am I wrong about? You know, the cup being one of them. How many things am I wrong about? How many things have I been wrong about? How many things am I still wrong about that I don't even know? So it makes me really thankful that our salvation is based on God and his mercy and his grace rather than our right knowledge or right thinking. So, man, I appreciate you. Appreciate the conversation. And to our listeners, we appreciate all of you, each and every one of you, whether you agree with us or whether you disagree with us, we love you anyway. And so does Jesus. So does God of that much. I am certain. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. We appreciate you listening to the podcast. Share it with your friends. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We would love to have that and help this podcast grow and gain visibility. Share it on social media. Share it with those people who you think it would help. We love hearing from you all. We appreciate all of you. Holler at us if you need anything, and we'll talk to you soon.